up, guys? Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Podcast. Uh, I am Dr. Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I also work remotely for Barbell Medicine in the Pain and Rehab Division. I'm joined by my two usual co-hosts, Dr. Michael Amato and Dr. Derek Miles. What's going on, guys? Good morning, happy, Mike. Happy belated birthday, Mike. Thanks, man. I can't believe I'm 25. Like, yeah, it's just that's crazy. It's crazy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's my repeat anniversary of 25. Yeah. Derek, so. Derek, Derek just holds us down with his, you know, fatherly figure in these podcasts. He he is like 45. Derek, aren't you 45? Yeah. Keep going, guys. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so I think our last podcast was with uh, Dr. Brocky on pain medication. I don't know. When did we last just us three talk? It's been I think February. I think February. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So, Derek, you've like relocated life to Cincinnati at this point. Yes, I'm currently back on the East Coast. We're back in the same time zone, which is quite nice for communication. Yes, very much so. Amato, anything new with you? Um, I, I'm still running, so that hasn't failed yet. And uh, I'm moving next week, so I'm hoping that it's not oh, like nice. 99 degrees and you know 100% humidity as as has been the last few days. Yeah, the, we have a similar story in Virginia. It's been like 95 degrees with ridiculous humidity, and yeah, not not fun. Yeah, I'm not a fan fun. of extremes like summer and winter. I rather have spring and fall. Yeah, so I live in the place that like only has the extremes. So yeah. But I still complain about it. Derek, what's Cincinnati like? Uh, we're actually, I live like 400 yards from the river. So we're down in the valley. Um, it's basically humidity, humidity, a little bit more humidity. And then Oof. after being in California for three years, I hadn't seen a good uh, thunderstorm until two days ago when mm-hmm. the skies opened up and Zeus himself put on a show for us. <laughs> Do you think the, I feel like I know the answer to this, but is the humidity worse in Cincinnati or Florida? Uh, it's different. Yeah. In Florida, at least you get a little bit of a breeze a lot of times, whereas I feel here it's like stagnant. <laughs> it's mm. It just kind of hangs around. So, Derek, I'll send you my uh, radar scope app if you get a lot of thunderstorms. It's like yeah. fun to track. Oh. You can be like a amateur meteorologist like I am. We holistic <laughs> thinking for the win. Exactly. This made me think uh Erica and I rewatched one of her childhood favorites the other day, which is Twister. Uh that app made me think of like Derek jumping in the truck, just like chasing <laughs> down the storms. <laughs> All right. So we're supposed to talk about osteoarthritis today. Um and when we were kind of creating this outline. A lot of people talk about this as like knee osteoarthritis or hip osteoarthritis. We're just going to talk about the umbrella term osteoarthritis today and kind of specifically to the audience for today are people who have been given this diagnosis. So we're not necessarily going to go a lot into like clinical diagnostics or anything like that. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about radiology and relevancy, but overall, we want to make this a useful podcast for those of you out there who have been given this diagnosis. You've been experiencing uh, knee pain or hip pain, especially with activity and you're like, I don't know how to move forward in this process or what my options are to kind of get through it and, and do the things I want to do in life. So this is a podcast for you if you're in that position. Um, and the way we're going to frame this discussion up is kind of uh, myths versus 
uh, myths or false beliefs versus what we kind of currently know uh, about people who are dealing with that umbrella term of osteoarthritis. So just from like a, a kind of clinical symptom standpoint, just for uh, context, usually people who are given this diagnosis, you've, you've been dealing with either knee or hip symptoms um, that are specific to activity and may even worsen with activity. And then at rest, you may feel a little bit better, but then once you initiate activity again, you notice symptoms kind of resurface. You may even notice loss of range of motion at the hip or the knee. You may also notice what we call crepitus, which is just a, a fancy word for saying kind of some popping, clicking, or grinding, which can oftentimes be quite worrisome for people, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. You may even notice a little bit of like weakness in the area, so feeling as though you're not as strong as you once were to do like stairs and stuff like that. So that's kind of like the usual context for this discussion. So I think the next best step is just kind of us diving into false beliefs. So what are some common things? And I have a few listed here in our outline, but Derek and Amato, what are some common things that you guys hear from patients in practice as it relates to osteoarthritis? Well, often it's that uh, knees are worn out bone on bone. You hear not a lot of positivity out of it. It, it is really this vernacular of I've done too much. My body hasn't been able to adapt and there's no going back from here. Yeah. I feel like a lot of it is like kind of blaming past history and wishing that they had known better because now they're in a, like a spot where they feel like they're in like a irreversible position. Yeah. Like how do I move forward from where I'm at and, you know, X, Y, or Z happened in the past. And, and now what mm -hmm. I think the common, like, um, label I give this, the common theme is just body as machine, right? They're like, oh, my knee joint's worn out. It's bone on bone. Uh, my hip joint's worn out. So we just need to go in and like remove that and replace it because I'm just a car, right? Just re remove the old worn out parts and replace them. Yeah. Or even just like avoiding the inevitable sometimes. Like I'll have patients that come in, they just kind of like, well, my doctor doesn't think I'm appropriate for surgery now, but it's likely to happen in X number of years. So, I'm, you know, I'm here to like salvage what I can. Yeah. Which, you know, what does that do to us? Is it kind of messes with expectations? It's mm -hmm. like, why am I here if this is the inevitable thing and this is a structural issue and it's, you know, yeah. uh, medial joint space loss and it's bone on bone. Now what? Well, it also kind of encourages doing less because a lot of times if you're given this like, well, I've wore my knees out. Well, then don't squat. Well, you know, it now hurts when I do stairs. Well, don't go up and down stairs. And before you know it, you're not left with any real options of activity. And that's just not a, a good way to live your life. Yeah. Which is a common myth, right? Is like you, you shouldn't be active because you're having symptoms from activity. And then if we go down that kind of route of this is a wear and tear issue, they oftentimes think that they're making their situation worse by being active because they think that's what led them to their situation. Mm -hmm. yeah, so yeah, it's hard to like, it's just hard to be, I always try to think like it's hard to be in the patient's shoes based on what we know. And then, you know, based on their kind of background is like, this is all they know because they have the evidence of increased activity causes pain. Then you go into the doctor's they produce the x-ray imaging, you are shown the changes, and then it just kind of seems logical, right? Like, why would I do more if this is this seems to be the problem? And this kind of brings us into the good old how prevalent is this in the asymptomatic population. And, you know, we, we do have the BMJ 
article uh, Kovner that says, I believe that uh, four to 14 percent of individuals will have some type of OA on imaging uh, asymptomatic in people under 40. And if you go over 40, you're talking 19 to 43 percent. And you also have the, the Framingham studies that which you had this massive cohort of older individuals where, you know, the average age of the people in it was just over 60 and radiographic osteoarthritis was present in almost 20% of hips. But as far as it being symptomatic, that was only 4.2%. Now the study did use symptomatic definition as pain on most days, but still you're, you're talking about a huge disconnect in the number of individuals with that and, and those reporting symptoms that would be normally one-to-one -one correlated with. Yeah, so I think it would be sufficient to say that like, we have a pretty good grasp on evidence demonstrating we can find osteoarthritis changes at the hip and knee uh, pretty readily available in asymptomatic populations. But then it leads us, leaves us in this weird position of like, how much does this matter and the significance of the case, which I think is inevitably, we don't have to get into this right now, but leading towards like surgical interventions based mm -hmm. off of image findings. But, you know, I, the usual way I frame this is because it's it's pretty rare if I'm talking to someone in practice that I'm like, let's go get hip or knee imaging for atraumatic situations. And oftentimes that's usually already been done. And then I'm kind of talking to them about the relevancy of what they've found. Mm -hmm. And so, like, we know we can have these findings in folks without symptoms. It doesn't mean we then just disregard what it is, but it's more of a question of like, how much does this matter in your situation? And more importantly, how much does it matter to for management and to move you towards the things you want to be able to do? Yeah, I think it's important. Yeah, not to be dismissive of it, be like, oh, just because like you rattle off numbers, you know, that person still is like, well, I still have it, and I'm symptomatic. So, what does it mean for me? Absolutely, um, and yeah, really, like, hip and knee OA is the eleventh highest contributor to global disability. So we're not talking about you know something that occasionally pops up. This is a massive, massive issue that we need to address. Yeah. Especially with its correlation to like other systemic morbidities like diabetes, um, hypertension. Yep. And that often is kind of the chicken or egg conversation of mm -hmm. which leads to the other. And uh, just last week or two weeks ago, there was an article came out in one of the JAMA subsidiaries that Basically, he looked at how to stave off chronic disease and found that individuals who met physical activity guidelines had a lower BMI, didn't smoke, and had moderate alcohol intake were almost a decade later in life before there was any type of manifestation mm -hmm. in chronic disease. So when you're looking at that, like we have high-yield interventions that individuals can participate in to stave off some of these things that uh, – we tend to think of as being inevitable as you age. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think like just hearing you guys talk about this, what we're more or less arguing for overall, like one of the big takeaways from this podcast will be, this is a person level management approach. This isn't, this isn't us disregarding imaging may have been done or the localization of your symptoms at hip or knee. It's more saying, what are the actionable steps we need to take? To help you manage through this without becoming too hyper-focused on this kind of structuralist mindset or image findings mindset. And, and Amada has already mentioned several things and, and Derek as well, as far as like managing comorbidities, uh, obesity would be a big one 
uh, managing, uh, if, you're, if you're diabetic, managing hypertension issues, hypercholesterolemia, managing more importantly in this context, I think at least how I look at this hierarchy, they're all important, but uh, physical activity. So getting people mm-hmm. to start being physically active. Um, what else would you guys add to that? Yeah, I just think like the overall approach of like what you're saying, like identifying the presence of the radiographic imaging and like diagnosis if that's been made. But then like framing it in a way of, and this, us being rehab clinicians kind of puts us in a good spot of being like, well, these are the factors that we can really modify. And, you know, like physical activity and exercise, strength, um, those are in our wheelhouse and those are modifiable and those seem to have good evidence to support that like it's not making it worse and that it can have functional and pain improvements. So like that's, that's our modifiable factor wheelhouse. Well, if you look at it, it, yeah. No, if you, if you look at it, part of the reason people come see rehab professionals is because they can't do what they want to do. anymore. Yeah. And it really, if, if you're told you can't do that or you shouldn't do it, you know, that's not really encouraging you to get back out there and go. And a lot of this really is showing individuals that it is okay. You know, for the listeners of this, what will likely hear the most, it is okay to squat. It is okay to run. It is okay to be active with this. And in fact, not only is it okay, a lot of times really that is the best intervention we have is finding ways to move and get in better shape within the constraints of whatever symptoms you're presenting with. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree with you guys with like the context in which we find ourselves as rehab clinicians is very much like what can we influence? And, and when it comes to, you know, the umbrella term of osteoarthritis, we know that first line management, and this is even according to clinical practice guidelines and, and major uh, organizational kind of regulating bodies is it should be education about the situation and, Obviously, that's not us just talking to people, but kind of exploring what are your understanding? What is your understanding of what you've been told thus far about mm-hmm. osteoarthritis and, and what are the symptoms you're experiencing? And then what's your response to those symptoms or the meaning applied to them? And then figuring out how to you know go through that collaborative communication and then set goals for them to start progressing them towards those things. And then the other intervention that we have, you know, supportive data for and an approach should be appropriately dosed physical activity. Uh, to Derek's point that I've heard him say previously, like we don't even necessarily need to call that exercise because for some folks in this situation, that may simply be, can I walk to my mailbox, get my mail and walk back to my house that day? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and really, if you look at the whole wear out uh, narrative, you do in the literature tend to see that there are, is almost an inverse bell curve of like OA manifesting. The people that are, there's a very high prevalence in people that are sedentary. And then there's a very high prevalence in, or a high prevalence in individuals that are chronically training. And, but otherwise exercise is protective. So like in, for the people listening to this, chronically training is, you know, working out for hours on end every day, professional athlete level. Odds are the average listener to this, you do not get to check the chronically trained uh, box on this. Mm-hmm. And really, I, I think some of this is having that conversation about how active we are as individuals. And the vast majority of people listening to this, myself included, you know, we're maybe getting an hour to two hours of moderate level physical activity a day. 
if you look at all literature on this, that is protective. Like that is how the stimulus you need in order to keep things adapting and you're not going to wear anything out at that dosage. Yeah, I think those are a really good point is I think, you know, obviously we're the general population we already know isn't meeting physical activity guidelines. And so like initial first step with these folks can be like, how do we take steps for getting you active and then kind of eventually talking about you know, better ways to meet those guidelines for positive health benefits outside of just uh, for osteoarthritis issues. But then to think like we can just run that out and like you're never going to exceed a threshold of exercise that may have some negative effects on you as well to Derek's point of being chronically trained at the end. That's often when we see professional level athletes, uh, that would probably not be a good thought process either. Yeah. Most people aren't running a hundred miles a week. Right. Yeah. Right. And this is one of those times, though, where if you want to run 100 miles a week, that's perfectly fine. Yeah. You may need to look to supplement that training with, one, being mindful of your recovery and nutrition, and two, some strength training that has been shown to help a little bit with this. And, you know, I, I have no problem with people having lofty goals. And part of the entire thing is what steps do we need to take to one, help you achieve those goals and two, reduce any risk of any kind of setback along the way. I think that's where we can really advocate for like dosage of activity and then trying to manage expectations. When I've, when I've worked with people like ultra marathon runners and stuff, it's more and often, especially in the powerlifting community, even it's wanting to race to some end goal. And it's like, yeah, I just started running. I haven't been running before. And I decided this week I was going to hit like 30 miles out of the gate. And I'm mm -hmm. like, well, you know, maybe we start a little bit lower and slowly build you up in time. If you want to run an ultra, I think that's that's awesome. Uh, but let's see how we can dose in activity over time to your tolerance level and recovery and give you management tools in case maybe you're having symptoms in this process or you're unsure of how to adequately recover and by adjusting loading. You know, I think that's really where we can advocate for that. Yeah, and if you look at it for the average individual, you know, we, ha we have the studies like the Bartholdi study looking at uh, decreasing pain and increasing function. And it's an interesting outcome because what he or what the authors found was that there needed to be an increase in strength of 30 to 40 percent to have benefits mm, yeah. of pain and disability. Now, to the average lifter, you know, 30 to 40 percent, your eyes peel back. But once again, right. we have to realize that most people presenting with osteoarthritis are not active individuals. And if I take you from 20 pounds to 30 pounds on the extension machine, we had a 50% increase in strength. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I think for our resistance focused athletes that hear 30 to 40%, they're like, holy shit, like, how do I get on that program? You know, like, yeah. <laughs> well, but yeah, we where's know the people trend aren't. coming from. Right. <laughs> But we know people aren't like when you look at national physical activity guidelines, like, you know, about 80 percent of the population is not meeting both cardiorespiratory recommendations or and and resistance training recommendations. So that 30, 40 percent is pretty easy to your point, Derek, to make up once you start intervening with this population. And then I thought because you did that write up for BMR, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's in. Yeah, this article was one of the ones we did for the research review. And to your point, 80% of people aren't meeting physical activity guidelines, but they've also done studies in individuals with osteoarthritis looking at their activity compared to individuals who have not been diagnosed. And out of that, only 58% were meeting physical activity guidelines. 
So, you know, when you're looking at things like this, we, we have really high yield ways uh, of starting to get people active and get them feeling better without immediately going to needing a joint replacement, needing uh, injection or, you know, pick the treatment du jour. Yeah. So for those listening, like major, major takeaway point so far in this conversation is we need to shift the narrative for this being a structural issue, despite maybe what you've been told and more looking at it as a person level uh, thing. So what can we manage within your life to move you towards your goals? That's more directed at kind of your understanding of symptoms and then how you're responding to them. And then activity, 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 like we can get you making small steps towards your activity related goals. I think it's going to do a lot of positives, not just like physiologically loading those areas, but also from you gaining confidence in your ability to do those activities. And, and one more time, exercise is safe and effective for helping those who are dealing with this umbrella label of osteoarthritis. There's not a need to avoid in this context. Well, and even if we're going straight structuralist for a moment, I think one of the best papers that you will ever find on this is the conscious neurosensory mapping of the internal structures of the human knee without intraocular anesthesia. So a a surgeon basically let someone scope his knee without anesthesia and they went in and started poking around. And when they were poking around, a lot of the places that we typically associate with having pain, he didn't really experience any. So imagine, you know, someone going in and like, putting a portal on your knee and poking around with a probe on your actual articular surface. He said, oh, it didn't feel too bad. And in fact, in the paper, it's actually <laughs> labeled as slight discomfort. So, you know, when you look at things like that, it, it's hard to immediately jump to the, well, I have this deficit and it hurts all the time. Like, no, it, it's more complicated than that. So, so I think, oh. go ahead, Amato. Well, I was going to present like maybe like a case that could like kind of put this into the patient's perspective, but um, because yeah. like this is this is something I used to see a lot too when I worked at more of like a community based uh, hospital setting. But yeah, like you're the patient that has knee pain. Like let's, let's say you have pain going down the stairs, and you know <clears throat> maybe pain more in the morning, dissipates by the afternoon, worse at the end of the day. You go see the doctor get the x-ray moderate OA and then they tell you you know go see physical therapy for six weeks and if it's not better follow up with orthopedics um so you know from that perspective I'm what interests me is like what should be kind of realistic for that patient and what should they be thinking about in terms of kind of that like success versus failure in conservative management before kind of proceeding to that orthopedic consult or that surgical consult, because a lot of these studies show the improvement, but a lot of them have different timelines, different interventions. And I, this, this kind of gets into like failure versus success with rehab, which I know is kind of always like a dicey topic, but. Luckily we have a, a meta analysis that looks at that. Exactly. And so. you know, what they found is, is the type of exercise doesn't matter. And this gets into having that conversation with the individual. Uh, You know, what do you want to do? Where can we start? And and whether it be aerobic or resistance, and really, if you look in literature, calling a lot of the protocols that are actually used, resistance training is a little laughable, or, you know, even balance type training has been shown to have an effect. 
Now, even beyond that, like if you are someone with this and or with a diagnosis of OA and you can't really do much of anything, there's actually some evidence for aquatic therapy too. And, and sometimes we do need to start there. But the, the key word there is start because, you know, we don't live in an aquatic world. And at some point we're going to have to be a land-based creature. Yeah. What? <laughs> so, you know, it, it is starting there, getting that transition out. Now, Amato, to your exact point, I don't know if you did this intentionally, like what they said is the minimum for treatment should be two times a week for six weeks. Mm-hmm. And, and like, do you really want to do the minimum if you're trying to get better? Like if, if you really want to have the effectiveness a lot of the evidence has really shown that programs over 12 weeks have had superior outcomes. And it makes sense, you know, if, if you work on getting more active, the longer you work on getting more active, the more it goes from something you have to do twice a week to starting to be like a behavior to where you start seeing you can go to the mailbox and back. And, and that really gets into the role of physical therapy there. And it is that like the two E's of education and encouragement. And, you know, well, last week you made it halfway to the mailbox. This week you made it all the way. It hurt on the way back, but hell, that's progress. And, and you know, it is that encouragement and, and helping to reframe and reassure individuals that, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think ultimately uh, what we're advocating for that in that regard, especially as far as like time frame and stuff, is going to be long-term behavioral change. You know, if you come in and see us for or even work with us remotely through barbell medicine for six weeks, uh, is that sufficient time for us to like affect long-term behavioral change? Because if you do this, you know, physical activity protocol we give you for six weeks and then we're like, okay, you're good. Goodbye. And you know, whatever they move on with life, if you just stop, you know, that's, that's not going to be beneficial, not only for like what you're dealing with, but also long-term health outcomes. So we have to have sufficient time to affect behavioral change as well in this process, which means we have to figure out buy-in and how is this meaningful to you? And it's also like one of the reasons you hear us say at Barbell Medicine, like, I don't really care if you barbell back squat. I would like for you to do some lower body resistance training because we know there's positive benefits. But if that means it's a leg press versus a back squat and you prefer the leg press, let's go for it. Yeah. Yeah. I just well, think it's like, some, yeah, sometimes it just gets set up in like an unfair way to the patient. You know, like they'll have like five years of pain and they'll be like, all right, go see PT or <clears throat> you know, your local rehab for six weeks. And it's like, right, you're not going to make a dent. I mean, you can start to get the process going. But yeah, that, I mean, that comes down to the individual clinician and patient relationship of being like, this is how the big picture looks like. And obviously it's going to be like individual to their um, goals and demands. But it's but also just, it's the overall messaging because you know if you go to a surgeon and they're like well this probably isn't going to work but go see pt for six weeks <laughs> yeah exactly Thanks. come on <laughs> that guy. Like, yeah. and you're not really doing anyone any favors and it's i i think it would be interesting to see it the other way like if you know they saw a rehab clinician first and they were like well you know surgery or an injection isn't going to work but you know let's give it a shot and then come back to pt yeah, that's a nice double entendre on my part there. Uh, but, you know, it really it is having those interprofessional relationships and everyone being on the same team. Mm-hmm. Because you know, if you think about it, like if everyone is positive, 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 and then you have your one negative Nancy in the group, it's like, well, your knees are worn out. This is always going to be a problem. Like, 
it's that voice, no matter how soft, always tends to be the one that sticks the most. Well, yeah, I think we have a propensity to hyper-focus on the negative, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. yeah, it's not I think blame, like, the ortho consults because, like, you know, it's, yeah. it's, the, it's the rehab clinician, like, phoning it in, too. It's just like, oh, let's put you through the six-week protocol, and then, you know, we'll, we'll do a v- well, VAS reassessment, and then, you know, that's, that's our do or die. I think where I kind of hold us, uh, myself included, accountable is this whole kinesiopathological model. So, right, like, oh, you came in with knee osteoarthritis and you did have someone consult first that said, go see a rehab clinician. Yeah. And they get there and then give you a thousand ways not to move your knee in this one perfect way to do it. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, we're pretty much just screwed. You know, if I move an inch to the left or something or minor, minor valgus, like my knee's going to explode and I'm, I'm done. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I like um, I like that one study by uh, Tanaka that looked at the um, non-weight-bearing exercises because it's like how do you give them like a little bit of a win and like a positive experience with exercise because it seems like the non-weight-bearing strength training has had a little bit more of an effect on pain and a lot of times like and this is like this is in my experience um, Hmm. you know you have someone come in with you know, knee pain sensitive to like weight bearing load. And then you're trying to like get them, like I'm still going to have them like do squatting movements, but it's not going to be intense enough to probably uh, make a strength improvement. And they're probably going to be a little symptomatic with it. So you have to modify it, but then you get them on the knee extension machine and they actually feel their quad burning, but then they have no pain. They're like, Oh wow, I can do something. And then you can see improvement with that and measure it. And um, it actually has like effects uh, in the literature, but it's just a kind of like, how do you make that experience like meaningful, engaging, positive? And it's like, oh, we can actually meet you where you're at and make improvements. But to your exact point there, I think you really nailed something because if you can get on something like the knee extension machine, it's very easy to, you know, last week we were at 30 pounds, this week we're at 40. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, there is something to anchor that too to really demonstrate progress. Whereas if it's like, well, 20 straight leg races burned last week, 20 straight leg races burned this week. And you're like, <laughs> well, what changed? So yeah. I think it does need to be anchored to something that we we can demonstrate actionable progress to individuals. Yeah. And that's, I definitely think- that's not the discount of straight leg race because occasionally that's where we need to start. But yeah. once again, the operative word there is start. Like uh, if you're doing that six weeks later, we, we probably have some issues. Yeah, I think it's a balancing act, like with our relationship with the patient, right? Like meeting them where they're at, which is what Amato said, but then figuring out how do we help them along the way. And, and sometimes that means we have to push them. But if you don't have trust built up just yet, maybe you try to push that barrier a little bit too quickly and they have a huge symptom spike, they may lose faith in you in the process. It's It's a a fine line I think we have to walk sometimes. Well, and I think it also, like, it's one of the more social components to it as well. Whereas, like, I I like treating in a busy gym because I I like my patients talking to each other and seeing where they are along the way. And having, you know, one individual on a knee extension machine, the other maybe doing a hamstring curl and they're talking to each other about where they were and the progress out of it. Like there's more value in that than anything coming out of my mouth because, yeah. you know, to me, I'm the one that hasn't dealt with this and I'm just barking orders, whereas they're yeah. going through it together. And like being able to, to have that environment to where people can 
talk about their experience with other people who've experienced it as well, uh, I think is an important component of this. And it's also why I think offering advice on something like a forum is nearly impossible in instances like this. Because there, as much as like, if you distill it down, it really is like, we need to reassure, educate, get you moving in a different way. That's yeah. very easy advice. I could probably turn it into a haiku if I sat there and thought about it for a second. Hmm. But that's like, you know, it's telling someone to calm down. Like, it's yeah. obviously the best way to actually get them to calm down. Like, there's hmm. layers to it you have to work through. And each person has their own narrative. They have their own experience, their own goals. And, like, it's nearly impossible just to, you, you come off sounding like you're discounting what's going on a lot of times. He's like, well, we just need to get you moving differently and get this calmed down. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. yeah, that's correct. But, <laughs> but that's, you know, it's like saying you were going to shoot a rocket to the moon and being like, Oh yeah, we just got to light a spark of gas. You know, right. it's yeah, you're, you're not wrong, but like, <laughs> there's a couple, lot more here. A <laughs> couple more steps along the way. Right. Yeah. So I, you know, it's very much just like, trying to listen to the person, their experience with what they've been dealing with, what they've already been told, you know, where do we fit in in that? How do we help with, you know, the big term I often say is sense making. And then how do we create an actionable game plan for them to, to move forward and do things and then give them, you know, the big thing is you should have after working with your clinician, some self-management tools, because I think a, a false expectation would be like, Oh, I went through this rehabilitative process. I did have good outcomes. And then I went back to my life and got symptoms again, you know, now what, what do, and it's like, well, if we have actionable steps in place and we're like, yeah, that, that very well may happen. You know, we're not making claims that you'll never have hip or knee pain again. What matters more is, is how do you learn to respond to that? How do you know to adjust your activity? How do you know to not be fearful of that activity or think that you're creating more damage in your knee? And those are really where I think a clinician can help with kind of addressing these false beliefs, but then giving immediate actionable steps, you know, maybe together one-on-one and then actionable steps in the future for yourself to self-manage. I think that's what is really important in the long term. Yeah. Cause even just that bare minimum of like these rehab programs don't appear to make the cartilage changes worse. Yeah. So it's like, why not do it? And why not try to make some functional improvement that's meaningful to you? Cause worst case scenario, you, you are like down the path of like getting that joint replacement, but at least you're like, stronger and more active um but, and that should let, let you to a better post-op scenario yeah i mean one of the biggest predictors of how well you're going to do post-operatively is how strong you are going into it yeah but you know if you look at it and i guess there are advantages to being the old guy in the group occasionally because like if you look at where we were even in the literature 10 to 20 years ago the thought process was you know, cartilage doesn't heal, discs don't heal. And what we've really yeah. seen in the past 10 years, and especially in the last like five to six, is a lot of evidence showing that there actually is a good amount of healing processes out of it. So it's not like once it's worn out, it's worn out. Like, you know, it, yeah. there are ways you can create changes out of it. And, you know, one of my other BMR articles that I thought was absolutely fascinating, and, and I hope at some point someone replicates it, is when they looked at cartilage thickness in uh, recreational weightlifters and oh, yeah. found that they actually had thicker cartilage, which makes sense. It turns out if you put a big load through something, it tends to adapt to it. 
And, and we have data the, on that for like running too, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's yeah. protective to a point, but in like, I, I think getting those messages out there is important. Like this stuff does heal. Like you, you can have some turnover in it. It doesn't immediately need a surgical intervention out of it. And really, if you look at the evidence, it, you don't see it being this just like wear and tear side of things. It, it's only like wear and tear plus sedentary behaviors or plus comorbidities. Uh, and yeah, it, it's, it's that second part that really is where the damage comes in. It's not the, the structure, it's the behavior. Yeah, the thoughts and beliefs about their experience and then, you know, their responses to it, the behavioral responses. And I think that's where we have, like, the greatest impact as rehab clinicians, at least in my opinion. Um, I think this is a good segue. I think we've talked about, you know, positive takeaways that you can make actionable to your life uh, as it relates to this umbrella term of osteoarthritis. The big question that I got on social media, which is, I think, the only one we've not actually addressed is you know, obviously we have evidence and radiological findings of folks having osteoarthritic changes and they're asymptomatic. But I think, again, going back to what we said earlier, to just completely dismiss that and be like, this doesn't matter, that'd be a misstep. Um, so I think that the tr transition discussion we need to have now is at what point does someone become a likely candidate for looking at having some type of joint arthroplasty done or surgical intervention done? I think that's ultimately at the individual's discretion, but really if you're not seeing any improvement with a well-designed rehabilitation program, then, you know, it, it may be time to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. And yeah. this also gets into as physical therapists or as rehab professionals, sorry, Mike, I'll break that good. one day, uh, like actually having objective measures. So just saying like you haven't improved, okay, cool. But, you know, we use things like uh, the lower extremity functional scale or, you know, testing quadriceps strength with a handheld dynamometer. Mm -hmm. And if those things aren't changing, then, yeah, it's likely time to go have a conversation with a orthopod. Yeah. yeah, I'll use that in my, to my advantage a lot. Like, you know, here are the markers I want to see change that should correlate with your, like, you know, subjective improvement. If we don't see that, there's a disconnect, then we either need to explore new avenues or involve, you know, other professionals um, after giving it, like, a solid, like, I don't know, the arbitrary 12 weeks, you know. Um, unless I there's, like, a timing thing, because, like, everyone has different lives, and sometimes they want to get things done before a specific time because they are going to travel to Italy next year, or, you know, like, I feel like that influences a lot of people, too, is, like, actual, like, scheduling and timing in their lives. Well, I think the question that, uh, actually, one of my friend's fathers, who's a cardiovascular surgeon, would ask all of his patients is a very important conversation to have. Like, what are you going to do differently after having this surgery that you aren't currently doing? And if the answer is, you know, I, I want to be able to play golf twice a week or something of that nature, then yes, it's time to have that conversation. But if it is like, I'm going to go back to sitting on the couch all day. Well, in those instances, like conservative measures are where we need to be. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that, you know, I, I agree with you guys. I think it's very individual. I don't know that we have, you know, here's like this very specific criteria to be like, yep, time to go, you know, do surgical intervention. But I think it's just working with the individual. I think to what something Amato said earlier is like, what's actually being done in the rehabilitative process or conservative management process, you know, was the person, you know, being communicated with, were they addressing false beliefs? Was a game plan made specific to that individual to help them with this process? To your point, Derek, how are we measuring those outcomes? You know, it should be specific to that human as well. Like what activities do they specifically want to try to move towards? And if it gets to a point, whatever the arbitrary timeline is uh, that we've set that we're like, yeah, we're just not seeing improvement and we've given this a decent amount of time, then I don't have an issue with saying, let's look at alternative avenues for this to help you get towards the life you want to get towards. I wouldn't, I don't think we should demonize surgical management completely. I think it's just knowing appropriateness of context of when to go that route. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can think of someone from last year who like, you know, we were pretty much limited to about 80 degrees of deflection because anything below that was either like getting stuck or just sharp, sharp pain that would like stop her in her tracks. So we did everything we could in that zero to 80 degree range. And, you know, after three months, it was just like, this is kind of where we're at. So let's follow up with a surgery, uh, surgical consult went really well. And she came back, could like bury squats, you know, was stronger than she ever had been in her life kind of, you know, and that's very case dependent, but it's like, you know, that's where I felt confident and like, let's see where like more medical intervention can help. Well, and, you know, I think any acute care therapist who's worked ortho for any length of time can tell you too, like individuals who are active and stronger do much better after surgery. Yeah. Like we, we would yeah. see, you know, they would do a total knee replacement in the morning. We would have them up walking the hallways in the afternoon. Then the individuals who were, you know, avid golfers or tennis players or runners or lifters, like most of the time they were a men assist or contact guard assist, like meaning they didn't need much help getting around. Mm-hmm. And whereas the individuals who had the sedentary life, like you're fighting an uphill battle. Like it, yeah. it's, it doesn't magically solve the problem by having a, a joint replacement. Yeah. I, I've, I've worked with people who've had joint replacements and had really, really good outcomes and got back to, to what you're saying, Derek, they got back to the activity they were already doing and then felt better afterwards. And I don't, I don't really see a negative in that context. Yeah. Absolutely. And really, I think it, it brings up the next kind of conversation that has to come up with this is the, what does it mean to fail physical therapy? And there I am just going to group it into PT because it's most of the time people not doing what they should be doing out of it. And, you know, no amount of additive placebo needling taping, you know, pick whatever is going to get you objectively stronger. And it's not bridging the gap to shit. Like it's like it, it, you, if you can't have the conversation to reassure someone and really try and encourage them to be more active, please just get them with a therapist who can. And, you know, we don't need to wrap our patients up like Christmas presents or, you know, poke them like we're checking the temperature of the Thanksgiving Turkey. Like it it really is like reassurance, education, and a very active and collaborative approach to the rehabilitation process with true objective measures. Yeah, I think that nails and nails our approach and encompasses it quite well. Uh, I don't know that I have anything else to add. How about you guys? 
yeah it makes, it makes me think of like a, yeah yeah <laughs> it makes me think of like scott morrison quote where it's like you know i care more about what you're not doing so it's like if you've been doing all that other stuff and you're not getting anywhere then you know what are you not doing to move yourself forward in that situation yeah yeah well hopefully this has been useful for everyone especially those of you who have been given this label or this diagnosis and, you, and you're kind of unsure of like what does this mean and how do i move forward Obviously, we're always available. You can schedule a consultation with us uh, remotely. We're happy to sit down and, and have a Skype call with you and talk through this process and figure out if we can help and how to get you actionable steps to move towards the life that you want to live. Uh, I'm Dr. Michael Ray, joined by Dr. Derek Miles and Dr. Michael Amato. Thanks for tuning in on this podcast, and we will see you next time.